Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this is Manuela Science Part 2. So last time we... I left you with a bit of a cliffhanger. Manuela had, she'd had her political eye-opening experiences. She like started working with Simon Bolivar. He was away a lot. So then she found ways to be closer to him. And then she... There was some people trying to do a mutiny and she came out in her pants outfit, probably not wearing her fake mustache, but like philosophically and psychologically fake mustache on. And then by her doing that, that really annoyed the Peruvian government who put her in jail and then exiled her from the country. And so we're going to pick up from there. I do want to, again, because I'm starting a new episode here to shout out. Thank God for this book, For Glory and Bolivar by Pamela S. Murray, which is a biography about Manuela Sanz, which is based on letters. Like everything that she has in this book is based on there was this letter. She said this. These people wrote this letter to her. Like it reminds me of this story in a couple ways, not just that it's like takes place in like the Western Hemisphere, but a bit of the way the, the Malincine or La Malinche story kind of how Malincine as a person has become less talked about as much as like the legend or like the icon of it all. So when you, but when you go back and just crunch down to the details of like, okay, who was Manuela? What actually happened? It, the, the process just reminds me of that because it's also, we will talk about later, but like Manuela Sanz has got this huge profile as a hero and as an icon. And I found this book really helpful to look at like, well, what is legend and what can we actually verify? Which is not to say that she didn't do other cool things that no one wrote letters about, but at least the letters clarify a couple of things. Like for instance, we talked about last time, there is this widespread rumor or legend that she fought at that battle and like cut off some guy's mustache and that that was the fake mustache she wore. But as far as Pamela S. Murray was able to figure out and she like went like to the archive, she was reading the letters, like Manuela and Simone Bolivar were not actually at that battle. So anyway, good book. Lots of facts there. I didn't mention this last time, I don't think, but I do want to give a shout out to a podcast called the Tris Quintos Literary Podcast. So they are a podcast. It's a seasonal and bilingual podcast dedicated to Latin American literature. They did an episode talking about Manuela Sanz, which I found helpful, partially just to practice my pronunciation of things. And the biggest of shout outs goes to Andrea, Tits Out Brigade member in Ecuador, who both brought Manuela to my attention and also really, really helped answer some questions I had to understand more about culturally how she is seen. So Manuela, banned from Peru, kicked out of Peru. Um, Meanwhile, her long distance boyfriend, Simone Bolivar, was off leading battles while presumably coughing 
up small amounts of blood delicately into a handkerchief like sateen in Moulin Rouge because he had tuberculosis and had had for years and years. Do we call that long tuberculosis? I don't know. So she finally left Peru, um, even though she tried very hard to delay that and not leave. And where did she go? Back to her hometown of Quito and just kind of waiting there for news about what Simone was up to. He hadn't written to her in ages. He was currently in Venezuela doing various bodily related things. I did, I'm not going to use, say that I use this as a source because I didn't, but it was an interesting book I got from the library. Um, when is this from? This is a picture book from 1992. It's called A Picture Book of Simone Bolivar by David A. Adler. And I, this same person has written picture books about people like Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. To his credit, he's also written about Helen Keller, Harriet Tubman, um, Martin Luther King Jr. So not just like white men, but anyway, I got this book out from the library, partially because I was just boring a bunch of books about Simone Bolivar, but also because I just kind of wanted to see what's his deal. What, how can I understand his importance to history? And there's so much detail about like he went into this country and then liberated it, but then it stopped being liberated and stuff. And basically this picture book goes through all that stuff. But the sense I get from all of this, and this is a Manuela Sainz podcast. This is a social history podcast. We're talking about her as a person, not about the specific politics of it all, because there's a lot. And that's just like not what I was researching. But effectively, Simone Bolivar is just like running all over all of the Southern American continent, except for Brazil, because that's Portugal's colony. Brazil, in around the same era as well, um, emancipated themselves from Portugal. So he's just like, let's make all these countries of South America, all the Spanish ones, let's make them be not baby Spain anymore. Let's make them all be their own countries. But his dream was to make them all be one big, sort of like the United States. Like he, something I read. I think it might have been in the Pamela S. Murray book. Like he, she was saying some people saw him as like the second coming of George Washington. He was like a figure of that level. And he kind of wanted to make like all of the former Spanish places. I don't know if they're like some are territories and some are called like the Audencia. But he basically wanted to take all of those and make it kind of be like the United States. But it would all be one country and he'd be in charge of it. That was his dream. So anyway, at this point, he's in venezuela and his girlfriend manuela is wrote to him and i love the way of these letters and also like side note we have these letters because she was such a good archivist she kept these letters people were like at various points they were like give us the letters we want to destroy the letters and she's like no i'm the keeper of the letters and she like saved them so we can know all this information like specifically about her anyway so one of her letters she wrote does it cost you so much to write me? How true is it that long absences kill love? I have conserved my passion for you in order to conserve my peace and happiness. So Bolivar was just like, okay, I should probably like invite her to see me or whatever. And well, he did. And then she went to see him. So she brought her entourage with her to just like relocate to go be with him. Um, her entourage consisted of presumably just a whole bunch of servants. A large enough entourage, she needed 14 mules, eight for baggage and six for riding. And she headed off to Bogota, where she settled into a house on San Carlos Street. I'm going to say like street names because those come up every now and then. So I presume that those are still called the same thing. And you can go visit them if you live in South America. Anyway, so her house was really close to. So he lived in the presidential palace. 
because I believe at this point there's the whole Gran Colombia thing is happening where it's kind of like all those former Spanish places were now one country and he called Gran Colombia and he was the president of it all. So he's in the presidential palace. She moved into a big house very close to there, which showed how important she was, which is like with Hortense Mancini, where she moved into the house, like close to where the king lived, like that sort of thing. So it's like, she's the mistress. Here's where she lives. It's like next door to him, but not together. And again, I respect couples who do not cohabitate. If you can afford it, recommended. So at this point, Bolivar. So his plans were to install himself as president for life, which is like whenever anyone in any historical anything is like, what if I just am in charge of this forever? Like, that's like a red flag of like dictator vibes. And the people of Bogota were not super into the plan of him being president for life. And this was one part of just various crises that all start that become extremely problematic for him at this point. So he wanted to realize his ambitious agenda, one that would coincidentally also enhance his own personal power and authority, and his enemies did not want that. Specifically, these enemies were like young, like lawyers and bureaucrats who wanted to maintain their own status. And it's the sort of thing where like they had higher status because they were good friends, like an old boys club scenario with like the people who were in charge. But if he was in charge, he didn't, they weren't enemies. Like they wanted the person, if there was going to be one president for life of like Gran Colombia, they wanted it to be somebody who would like do favors for them, which again, is like very much vibes of like contemporary politics everywhere in the world. So Bolivar was like, he was like, well, what if I become like the dictator? Like, what if I'm not voted in but like just become dictator or no, I think, I think he wanted to be literally have the parliament vote him in as dictator. That was unpopular. Um, this is especially unpopular among a guy who's going to become a main character in the story. His arch rival, who's Francisco de Paula Santander, who they fought alongside in the like freeing these areas from Spain era. But now in this kind of like they're freed from Spain and who's going to be in charge era, Santander and Bolivar were on opposite sides of each other. He was also, I think at this point, the vice president. But they both had followers. So people like Manuela, who were like on Bolivar's side, were the Bolivarians. People who supported Santander were the Santanderistas. And yeah, so this is taking up a lot of his energy which meant, you know, he didn't have a lot of time, even though they were now together in like the same city, he and Manuela didn't have a lot of time to like hang out together, which I think she was cool with. Like as long as she was there and she was like in the mix, like she wasn't just like, oh, why don't we have date night? Like that's not what she's about. And she was playing a role here that she did before and she will continue to throughout this story from now on, which is just kind of being like a mediator, sort of like a link between Bolivar and various scattered friends and supporters. Like she was so personable. And so, I don't know, charismatic and friendly and persuasive. Like she was able to host parties and change people's minds or just like if someone was like on the verge of like maybe not supporting Bolivar anymore, she could like convince them to. Like this was a thing that she was very proficient at doing. (laughs) My notes here say, um, so a bunch of things happened. Believer declared the nation in crisis. 
and he stepped in to assume emergency dictator pop powers to, quote, save it. So that happens. He's like, I guess what? Now I am the dictator. Uh, Manuela was like, that's her guy. So she's right there supporting him and encouraging other people to support him, including uh, she threw a major party. So this was another thing that she did a lot of. And now I don't, it escapes me. Like listeners who have more recently binged the entire, all of the episodes of Vulgar History, help me out here. There was somebody else who just like party planning was like a major political thing they did. Wasn't there somebody, is that Hortense or is that somebody else? Anyway, her, she threw parties and they were not just like a place to have fun, but also they were important for just kind of the social aspect. Like I was saying, you know, like making sure that the people who were supporting Believer felt like that was the right thing. And it was like a fun time. Anyway, so this was a particularly notable party. So his birthday, July 28th, 1828. Alcohol was flowing. Everyone's having a nice time. Manuela probably wearing her mustache. One thing led to another and somebody made an effigy of Santander. So like a uh, life-size doll of Santander, just like, haha, LOL, like let's do this. I don't know if it was made of pillows or like straw, whatever. Cause they all like hated him and he hated them. Like anyway, so they made this effigy of Santander. There was priests were there. So priests gave last rites to the effigy and the effigy was then put to death by a firing squad. Priest, I guess the same priest said a sermon over his, the dead, quote, body of the effigy, which is just kind of like a thing that happens. I don't know. It's, it's giving me like, don't, you know, sports teams. If you have like the, the rival team, you like make, you have a doll of like their mascot or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, but these were like real people. This was like a really tense situation. They did this like Manuel, I'm sure was like, LOL. This was a very scandalous thing when people found out about it. To the point that like both Believer and Manuela had to like make public statements, both being like Manuela had nothing to do with this. Like other people were doing it. Like she was shocked and appalled, nothing to do with her. And this is where it's like, well, we have the letters and we have the like broadside saying this, but it's like, Everything I've read about Manuela makes me feel like this was totally something she would do. This is totally something she would have been into. Like, she's a prankster. This is her whole vibe. Anyway, so they're both like, totally not her. She didn't do it. Yeah, uh, this quote, I forget if I said this last time, but she said in one of her letters herself, she said, I love nothing better than laughter and a good joke. But anyway, this was like you know, whatever. People were upset about it. I think that the Santanderistas use this as like, they got like overly upset about it to try and make the Bolivarians look bad. And also just to try to really scape out Manuela and be like, she is this, who is this like scandalous, like insane woman? She's wearing pants. She has a fake mustache. Um, and she did this like disgraceful thing. Although I would say like the priest is the one like, priest was all in this as well so the santanderistas were just like oh like not only is believer terrible and a dictator but like he's taking advice from this like mad woman and it's from around this time that believer referred to manuela in a letter as the amiable mad woman which is a thing that people often say about her and i feel like could be a merch slogan wait and see but in the letter believer was basically like what can i do like 
she you can't if this is what she's gonna do you can't stop her that's kind of like her whole thing like she is just like nobody can control her behavior not even me like the literal dictator slash her boyfriend but this is where um some of the manuela bad reputation stuff comes from where it's just like oh she was crazy she was like i don't think it's like specifically this because like but it's it's the sort of like oh she's a fiery latina like sort of vibes even though like everyone is in the story is like the same race anyway they're all just like oh she's so crazy so which is an easy way to dismiss her and her importance and also it was a way for the sanhedristas to make bolivar um look bad so they could maybe take over from him a few weeks later, so that party was in like late July, so August 10th, Bolivar attended a masked ball, and I love a masked ball moment. The Santanderistas planned to attend this event, having hidden daggers in their costumes and to stab him to death, like big et tu brute vibes. But, so for some reason, Manuela not attending this party. Not sure why. Was she not invited? It might have been like, let's just like lay low for a minute. That's what I suspect it was. She was like, it might have taken attention away from Bolivar if she was there. They're just trying to like let this kind of like effigy saga kind of like, let's just let that kind of die up. Anyway, she wasn't at the party, but she had heard because she had a spy network because she's amazing. She heard that this was going to happen. And so she showed up to the party to try and warn Bolivar. She showed up, I believe, I wrote down here, wearing her military uniform because I guess she wanted to be taken seriously, her like colonel uniform, but she was denied entry by the guard. Why was this? Because the guard was one of the conspirators. He was a Santanderista. So she was like, Ugh, okay, but like, I need to warn him. Like my boyfriend's in there. He's going to be assassinated slash he's also like the dictator. So she, again, this is where it's like, couple different retellings of the story, but I'm going to go with the one that I find the most cool. So she went away, disguised herself in dirty rags like an old crazy beggar woman, came back and started yelling and acting insane, um, potentially yelling things like, long live the liberator, like, which is about Believer. She was acting so just like goofy and weird, which on the one hand is like, oh, Manuela, like, what will she do next? But she was just making such a like, she might have had like a liquor bottle or something. Anyway, she was just like making a big scene to the point that like people inside the party were like, Manuela is outside like acting insane. And they went to Believer and he's like, oh my God, like the amiable mad woman, that's so Manuela. So he like went outside to reprimand her to be like, stop being insane. But she got him outside and then they left. So at midnight when the conspirators came to kill him, he was gone. So she had saved him in a really iconic way. And then she saved him in an even more iconic way. So that, that was August 10th. So a month and a bit later, September 25th, another assassination attempt occurred, but Manuela again saved the day. So this time, the conspirators planned to attack the presidential palace, like to come into Simone's room and just like assassinate him there. So this group consisted of 16 soldiers and 10 civilians armed with knives, pistols, and swords. Again, they plan to attack at midnight. Is this like, I don't know why everything is, anyway, whatever. Taylor Swift's new album, Her Mind, etc. So under a bright moon and light drizzle, this group of 16 intensive events, so it's 26 people, 
approached the palace, uh, subdued the guards, quote unquote, which I think means like stabbed them, um, then made their way inside the palace towards Believer's bedroom. Here's the thing. Believer had himself been warned several days earlier by an informant, note a female informant. He had some lady spies who knew what was going on. So he knew that this was going to happen like this night at midnight, but he didn't take it seriously. Like what? Like they just tried to kill you at the mass ball. Like tensions are running high and he's like, mm, whatever. So he didn't post any extra guards that night. And in fact, I think some of his regular guards were sick. So he just had like a couple guards at the door and that's it. Manuela was there. I don't know if she was there like intentionally because she knew this was going to happen or if she was just like, that's her boo and she's hanging out with him. Anyway, he also had a head cold. Remember, he has like tuberculosis as well. So he wanted her to come and take care of him. You know, remember, she lived in a separate house. So he was like, "Mm, I'm sick. So she came over. So what she was doing was reading him soothing poetry while he was in a warm bath, which is just like, the most domestic sweet image of people. So they had a nice bath, poetry reading, then they went into bed, fell asleep, but soon after midnight. So again, I don't think she knew that, or she also, maybe he convinced her this wasn't going to happen. Anyway, Manuela woke up to dogs barking and the sound of footsteps outside. Bolivar was like, I'm going to run in the hall and fight the intruders myself. And she's like, maybe not. (laughs) It sounds like there's a lot of them. So she convinced him to not do that. In fact, what she finally convinced him to do was to jump out of the window to outside and to safety, which he did. And then when the assassins burst into the bedroom, they only found her. And she was just like, what? I don't know. Like, Simone's not here. I don't know where he is. And they were like, well, if he isn't here, then like, why is the bed warm? And why is the window open? And she's like, well, I was just lying in the bed myself waiting for him to come back from this like business meeting. And I opened the window because I heard all these dogs barking. I wanted to see what was going on. Eventually, she's like, Bolivar, he's in the council room. Um, And they're like, well, where's the council room? And she's like, I'll take you to the council room. She's just like stalling, stalling. And then they went walking through the palace. And she's like, "Mm, uh, where's the council room? Oh, I'm a woman. I don't remember things. La, la, la. And while they were walking, she also stopped to attend to one of the guards whose hand had been nearly severed defending the palace. So she's just like walking through the corridors with 26 assassins being like, mm, I, I don't know, like, like around just like bodies of people, apparently like the bravery of this woman. Come on. Eventually frustrated, the conspirators realized she was stalling and then they beat her with a flat end of their sword. So not stabbing her, but just like hitting her with swords like really badly, like beat her up really badly. Um, Apparently she still felt the effects up to 12 days later. But eventually finally realizing that their plot had been foiled, Believer was not in this house, uh, the attackers fled. And then Manuela stepped up. She ran for a doctor to minister to the guy whose hand had been cut off. And then she began checking on everyone else in the house. So she was just trying to help all the guards who were around there. Um, The vibes are like in the story of Queen Margot, when there is the big um, Protestant stabbing, the, was it St. Valentine's Day massacre? And Margot just like ran around helping everybody. It's that, it's that, it's like good for her. The morning after, so like she went, she found Bolivar, he was like in the town square, I think with some guards and he was like shaken. Obviously he's like, all right, maybe I should take these threats seriously. Like, yeah, maybe you should. And apparently after returning back home, was the first time that Bolivar turned to her and called her the Libertadora del Liberator. Libertador. 
so Bolivar was called like the libertador, the like liberator of, you know, all these countries from Spain. And she was the one who saved him. So ever since then, she is often called the libertadora. And because she was there and she like talked to these 26 guys, like she was a key part of identifying who they were so they could like, and who were the guards who like weren't helping or who were helping. So she was able to sort of help find who the, you know, traitors were within their midst, comma, and in at least two instances, so the female family members of some of the attackers went to her to plead their case. They're like, oh my God, like, please don't be too hard on him. He's our beloved family member and stuff. And so Manuela actually stood up for them. So she, in two instances at least, uh, she lied and said that she hadn't seen those two guys there. And the result of that was one of those guys. His death sentence was commuted to exile and the other one to imprisonment. She also later apparently hid several suspects inside her house. So I don't know, like this is partly maybe sympathy or just doing a favor for somebody who she hoped would do a favor for her later. But apparently she also wanted to learn more from them about the origin of the conspiracy and or how much was Santander involved in it. So yeah, this like whole situation really got to Bolivar who um, became more of like a hard, he was already a dictator, but now he's more like hardline dictator. He was just like, okay, we really need to like get rid of any dissent at all. And his new plan, even though he was now like lifetime dictator or whatever, he started planning to convert the Republic of Gran Colombia into a monarchy with himself as the king. And this is because he really liked, remember when he was younger, he had gone to Europe, like he had traveled around a bit. And he was a big fan of like the British system. Like he liked having, you know, a king, but then also a parliament and then also like a prime minister. Like we see how well that's working now in um, England right now. But he liked that model of that sort of democracy. And what is it? Whatever. I'm not a political science person. I like parliamentary democracy, but with a king. And he's like, and I will make myself the king. I mean, you can assume that the Santanderista is not a fan of this at all. But Manuela was, you know, she's supporting him. This is her thing. Um, so she hosted lots of people at her home, not just parties, but also just visiting. So she's keeping herself apprised of what was going on, where and with who, just like learning all the, all the hot gossip. Apparently while she hosted people, she smoked. She also did cross-stitch, which were two of her main things she liked to do for like relaxation reasons which you know she needed things to do for relaxation reasons because like everything was stressful all the time obviously but also well including the fact that uh believer's health was getting worse um and his political fortunes were also uh, not doing great his whole plan to like become the king was wildly unpopular and that was one of the many things that led to protests that wound up kind of breaking Gran Colombia into separate countries of Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and Bolivia. Things were not doing great politically wise. Also, his health was bad. And so he announced plans to retire and to leave the country, maybe go to Europe. So yeah, Manuela stayed in Bogota. Like she didn't leave with him at this point, but she was just like, he'd been sick as long as she'd known him. And she's just like, he'll get better. But he was kind of worried about like, what's she getting up to while she's there? He wrote her a letter and part of it said, my love, 
while I love you very much, I will love you more if, now more than ever, you show good sense. Be careful with what you do, for otherwise you will lose both of us. And that's the whole thing about, like, no one can control her. She can't be tamed, etc. But, like, it's a really precarious situation for them both. Believer's enemies began, well, I'm sure they had already, but it just got more. Um, they were denouncing him in the press, calling him all kinds of names, calling her all kinds of names. I mean, different sorts of names. Like, he was more just kind of, like, ineffectual, and she was more, like, crazy person. Anyway, the Feast of Corpus Christi on June 9th, 1830, was being held in Bogota. She hadn't been there, but she was coming back. And she learned from her spy network, or maybe just from like anyone, because the like, this is a pretty major thing being planned. Um, she learned that there were going to be effigies of her and Bolivar were going to be burned in a display arranged by Santander himself. So in kind of like this big, there's going to be like sort of like a castle and then Believer was done up with a crown to show like he's the king. And then she'd be like, I'm like the mistress of the king. So knowing that she was probably coming back to town and then she would be upset. Um, Santander had stationed armed guards around the plaza where these apogees were going to be put and burned. But of course, that didn't stop her. She arrived at the plaza on horseback, dressed in her colonel uniform. She was accompanied by two of her servants and two bodyguards armed with knives and bayonets. And so she tried to get past the guards by charging at them. She ordered her servants and bodyguards to knock them out of the way. She threatened to fire her two pistols. Eventually, the whole thing ended when more of Sinhander's troops arrived, who subdued her servants and bodyguards and took them off to prison. And so she finally went home as well. And this kind of, I don't know, it feels like this was maybe a setup just to get her there acting crazy so they could like prove like see how crazy she is. So one of the newspapers ran a story characterizing her behavior that night showing that she was unhinged, scatterbrained, full of insolence and effrontery. She responded in big like um, vibes of like numerous people we've talked about this season. She published her own broadside, which was like a newspaper type thing in which she explained she had done nothing criminal or illegal she said she had been 1,000 times provoked to commit, well, to act like she did. She wrote, quote, Everyone knows I have been insulted, calumniated, and attacked. You may call my hot-headedness a crime. You may insult me. You may thus satisfy your thirst for vengeance, but you have not succeeded in making me despair. Yeah, so her enemies, I guess the Santanderistas, were like, give us Bolivar's archive. Because remember, she was the archivist, the keeper of all the letters. And she was like, hell no. And she was busy setting the stage for Believer's comeback, rallying local sentiment. Like one of her servants was seen putting up pro-Believer flyers and broadsides around town. Um, she evaded arrest for several weeks. I guess she was arrested for what she did at these effigies, which again, really makes it sound like a setup. Eventually she turned herself in, maybe because there's so many assassinations, rumors being spread about her. She was like, maybe I should leave town. Anyway, she agreed to leave Bogota. Well, she was officially ordered to exile herself from there. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Did you know that President John Quincy Adams had a pet alligator that he kept in the East Room of the White House? Well, he didn't. That's a myth. What's not a myth is the story of Thomas Jefferson's four-horned ram that terrorized the White House lawn, an animal he knew was dangerous but did nothing to stop until it was too late and someone was dead. These are the kinds of stories that Howard Dory and Jessica Dory explore on the award-nominated podcast, Plotting Through the Presidents. 
They combine compelling narrative dives with irreverent humor and marital banter, creating a show that listeners say is well-researched, insightful, delightful, and hilarious. They cover the myths, scandals, and rivalries that bring to life the personalities of the early United States. And they go beyond just the presidents, digging into folks like Benjamin Rush and Governor Morris, two fascinating founders, neither of whom should be trusted with sharp objects. Catch up on their first three bingeable seasons now and plot along with Howard and Jess for the fourth season of Plotting Through the Presidents. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. And then Bolivar died. So he died on December 17th, 1830, in Santa Marta from his tuberculosis. Manuela had, was at this point, she's staying in Guaduas, Colombia, which was a place with a warm climate that she might have been staying there because she had rheumatism and she needed, it was December, so like she needed to be somewhere warm. She did not attend his like big public funeral, but so maybe for health reasons, but maybe she just preferred to grieve in private at this point. And from then on, she started smoking cigars regularly. So she moved from, I guess, cigarettes to cigars for, I don't know, made her feel better. So, legend has it, upon news of his death, which took a while to reach her because, like, it was oldie times. Allegedly, she tried to die by suicide by letting a poisonous snake bite her. And she talked to a guy who, like, saw her snake bite, and she was like, oh no, I just let the snake bite me for a science experiment. So, like, I don't know. But directly after Simone's death, her behavior became more erratic, which concerned those who knew her, which is like considering how erratic her behavior was before is like it must have been pretty extreme. Several of her friends noted her craziness and refusal to avoid dangers. So a bit of a death wish moment here. 
And now that Bolivar was dead and no longer taking care of her expenses, she had come to depend on credit. Because remember, women couldn't have jobs. Or we're going to talk about this more in detail, but like wealthy white women couldn't have jobs. Anyway, we're going to talk about that in a bit. Because her finances become quite an issue. So she's trying to figure out what this, what was this new era for herself? What was this going to be? Grand Colombia officially ended. Um, Venezuela and Ecuador separated to establish their own separate republics. She returned to Bogota, um, now living in a rental on the city's outskirts. Uh, Santander became the new president of Colombia, which was bad news for her because pretty quickly he exiled her for being implicated in a conspiracy against him. And she was like, I was totally not involved in that conspiracy against you. But like, I mean, she probably was. So he exiled, well, he said, you are exiled. She, of course, in a way that she does every time anyone exiles her from anywhere, she refused to leave. Uh, She wound up being forcibly removed from her home along with her servants, allegedly, or not allegedly, like according to records. It took a guard of 20 soldiers a whole day to arrest her. One man wrote she had been as brave as Caesar in resisting arrest. She tried to return to Quito, her hometown in Ecuador, but the Ecuadorian president, Vicente Rocafuerte, revoked her passport. Um, He was a real piece of shit, so he would not let her return because, partially, quote, it is the women who must promote the spirit of anarchy in these countries. So he was like, she can't come back here because she's, well, she was like this notorious revolutionary, but also he was just like, "Mm, don't care for women like that. So in her book, Pamela S. Murray says that comments like this constituted more than a simple complaint about the activities of the government's female opponents. These comments reflected a broader elite male reaction to the seeming breakdown of traditional gender boundaries and above all perceived female encroachment on the public sphere and traditionally male realm of politics and governance. This threatened patriarchy and the ideal of female gender subordination. As Rebecca Earle has hypothesized, it inspired a certain male anxiety or uneasiness, a sentiment that may be inferred from early Republican leaders, scant praise of female wartime accomplishments, and insistence on portraying women mainly as victims. So it also reminds me of um, the thing in the Fredigan story where it's like she died and Brunhild died and the men left to write the records were like, what if we don't let anyone know women did these things because that way women won't want to do these things because we don't want women to do these things. So this Ecuadorian president, Vicente, like he was like, I don't want her back here because she's a revolutionary, but also like she's a revolutionary in the sense of like literally being involved in a revolution, but also like she had been part of this thing, like at the beginning when she was like in her late teens, early twenties, where the women were really helping with revolution and they got this political power um, and they started getting independence and that was just threatening and scary. And so he didn't want someone in his country who would maybe inspire other women to be like that. So Vincente Roccaforte, go fuck yourself. So she's like, well, fuck you then. Um, And so she went to Northern Peru, living in the small coastal town of Payata. So this is a, this is where she's going to be for the rest of the story. So this is a small town. It was prosperous due to the growing New England-based whaling industry. She made new friends there. She fit right in, but she longed to return to Quito. And she wrote to her friends like that she felt lonely while she was there. Now, allegedly, Haita 
because of the New England-based whaling industry, apparently Herman Melville, the writer, author of Moby Dick, the famous whale-based book, went there. So did she meet him? Maybe. There's like a whole movie. It's from like the year 2000. And it's about Herman Melville going to Paita and meeting her and then her like sharing her story, which is like fine. But um, if she didn't meet Herman Melville, then this is something that I really need to consider for the vulgar history bingo card, because after Lola Montez met George Sand, it's just kind of like an unexpected author cameo in these stories. Anyway, so she's in Northern Peru. And she remained involved, like at a distance, like she kept up to date with what was happening in politics. But, you know, she was involved, like she was sort of like, not a kingmaker, but like a person who would, could just like connect people to other people who might be able to help with various like political things going on. So Paita seems like it was a place where a lot of people who were in exile from other places kind of landed. So there's other people there also from Ecuador. And she felt a sense of national pride in her, in that country. Apparently she was having a conversation one day with a Peruvian man who said something xenophobic about Ecuadorians, referring to the country as a poor place lacking in leaders. Manuela apparently told the crazy imbecile what he deserved to hear. So like, imagine what that might have been. She had a good reputation among the people in Paita because again, like as she had shown in several other instances, like she really cared for other people, especially like people who are suffering. Like when she helped out the soldiers, when she was helping the people in the wake of the assassination attempt. So like this was a place full of people who just really needed help. And so there's exiles. So she tended to people when they fell ill. She used her political connections to perform special favors. Like she really cared about people. And then at some point in this era, she suffered a, a leg or a hip injury. One thing I read described it as maybe a dislocated hip from falling down the stairs in her home, which meant that she basically lost use of her legs. So she would spend most of her day, she had a hammock set up to, because that was like, she'd go from bed to hammock. When she had visitors, uh, some people wrote about her laying on the sofa. Um, she had a large leather wheelchair she would use for when she was like greeting visitors. So she just became disabled at this point. And she still was broke, had to make a living somehow. So this is what I said I was going to talk about. So women were barred from most occupations and skilled trades. So like all women were barred from most occupations. And white or upper class women faced further restrictions compared to darker skinned working class women because uh, white women were expected to stay at home and limit their contact with these supposedly corrupting influences of the outside world. So like both are shitty situations. I'm not going to say one is shittier than the other, but we've got darker skinned women who were able to get jobs. And then we have upper class women who is like, oh, no, you're too like, important to get jobs. So you can't have jobs. Actually, no, I think, anyway, so that's what's going on. Like we've talked before about that there's this kind of like very skin color based caste system going on. But anyway, what this meant for Manuela is that she like could not get a job. Well, firstly, she like did not have the use of her legs. But secondly, like she was not allowed to work. So yeah, this was, this was a, well, this is the thing, right? It's like how um, in other stories where like, Women weren't people, like their men controlled their money, like happened with Hortense Mancini. So it's like, yeah, this is a system where she couldn't work, but that's because it was a system based on the assumption that she was going to be cared for by a husband and she had like abandoned her husband decades ago. So it's kind of like, 
the system working like it was intended to, which is discouraging women from leaving their husbands. She had, there's a lot of financial stuff. I'm not going to get into all the nitty gritty, but she had some inheritance, remember, from her mother, the Itzperu family. And then also she, from them, I think she, or no, from her father's family, she had inherited a house and a retail store in Quito, but because she was so far away and because she couldn't return to Quito, like the people who had those were like not paying her the money they should be. So she just, other people owed her a lot of money that they were not paying her. She suspected her financial administrator of malfeasance, um, which seemed like she was correct in suspecting that. Like she, there was some money she should have been getting, but it was not being sent to her. And then her husband, remember her husband, James Thorne from England, was murdered in 1847. He was ambushed and stabbed to death by unknown assailants after strolling the grounds of his hacienda while in the company of his mistress, who was also killed. This was part of like a crime wave that was going on in that area at that time. So by now, Manuela and James Thorne, they had been um, pen pals for a while. Like they were now friendly. So she was upset because this like was her friend. Um, she yearned for justice and revenge. She dressed as a widow, like she dressed in black, I guess with a veil and stuff at this time. And so this is another financial based thing. So legally, widows would inherit their husband's estate unless uh, they had violated their personal moral obligations of being a wife. Like, um, for instance, abandoning her home, leaving her husband, taking a lover all of which she had done. So the only money that she technically maybe could inherit for him was the 8,000 peso dowry given to him by her father. But he didn't have that money on hand. So again, it was a debt that was owed to her. So do you remember way back at the beginning of her story, like when she got the sash for being the, um, when she was allowed to join the Order of the Sun, where it was like, you know, men who did, who were war heroes got a pension and a job and stuff. And she got like a sash. So between that and the work that she had done working with Bolivar, like a man in the same situation would have some sort of pension. She was this like great war hero, but she was a woman. So she didn't get a pension from that. She was not getting the inheritance that she maybe should have been getting from her mother's estate or also from her dead husband's estate. She was disabled and living in poverty. So in this era, she wrote in one letter that she was in more misery than she had ever imagined she would be. Um, She voiced some suicidal thoughts at this time. Um, And she just like had to hustle and figure out what she was going to do. So she started doing some jobs like on the side, she started, remember she grew up in the convent. So she was really, really good at um, stitching, like embroidery. And that was one of her hobbies as well. So she started selling embroidered handkerchiefs and garments. Um, she worked in these with her female servants, um, putting the skills she'd learned growing up in the convent to use. So she was kind of making and selling some crafts because people liked the Ecuadorian embroidery style. And remember there's people in Paita from Ecuador as well. So maybe, you know, remind them home. She also made some money by doing some freelance work for the American consul in Peru, who was a guy who was a wealthy merchant. We're not sure what work she did, but probably um, because she was fluent in English, she probably served as an interpreter or translator because he was the American consul and like they were in Peru and she could like translate English to Spanish. 
So translating, but maybe also serving as a mediator. Like we just know he paid her sometimes, occasionally for some work she did for him. This is where perhaps she might've met Herman Melville. Um, but still, she was barely able to support herself. Her lawyer, who had reason to exaggerate because he's the one who's trying to demand her debtors pay her. But there's some truth in this. So she's described by her lawyer as living in a pitiful hut, submerged in the worst kind of misery without any sort of income on which to subsist, dependent for her daily bread on the charity of various friends. And various friends confirmed that like she, yeah, they were helping pay for her. Like she did make friends. Um, she still had some powerful friends. Like she, because she was charming and smart and interesting and funny. I'm sure still doing some pranks of some kind. So like the kindness of strangers, people were helping her. And maybe that's sort of like, I don't know, the way that she had helped, that she did help other people who were struggling. You know, it kind of like people knew she was this kind-hearted, good person and they helped her as well. She was not the only widow, quote, like she was technically a widow, even though she had not, she had left her husband. But widows were affected profoundly in a lot of places all over South America at this point. Because there'd been like between the revolution, all the civil wars, like, um, firstly, a lot of men had died in these battles, leaving a lot of widows, but then also because of the various wars, like that affected trade and things. And a lot of these places had a trade-based economy. They weren't able to do that, especially Peru. So even like the wealthy people who are still there, there's like an economic depression, going on basically just like people didn't have money even like wealthy people like there just was not money so there's she was living in poverty as were to a lot of people but i wouldn't say luck but like her resiliency and her hard work and just like connecting people with each other which she'd always been good at she connected with a better lawyer who after years of fighting he was able to get her finally part of her inheritance from her husband as well as from her mother's estate so she started being able to like get money from Quito. By the 1850s, she was able to expand her hand-stitched business, selling Ecuadorian handcrafts. Um, and she set up a way to get materials sent regularly from Quito, you know, like shawls and things for her to embroider so she could sell. So her little small business was growing. She also grew closer to members of wealthy and arist aristocratic families, as well as up and coming political figures. So she was like back in her lane, like she was moving and shaking among important people. She hosted a lot of gatherings, parties, like she always had, connecting people to other people. Um, presumably her house is not the hut described at one point. But as this was all happening, like her health was also becoming more fragile. So because of the hip injury, like this whole time, if you're like, how was she like, if she has no money, like how is she doing anything. So she depended on a servant whose name was Juana Rosa, who was formerly enslaved, now a paid servant, who had followed Manuela into exile. And they were very, very close friends. Or Manuela regarded Juana Rosa as a close friend or a cherished relative. So Juana Rosa was the one who helped her, you know, moving her from the bed to the hammock, to the wheelchair, like just taking care of her and stuff. And I'm glad that when Manuela got money, she would be able to pay Juana Rosa again. And then, toward the end of 1858, a diphtheria epidemic struck Paita. Apparently, it was brought over by um, people from England. So anyway, she contracted this. So did Juana Rosa. Juana Rosa died on November 21st. And then Manuela Sainz died. Uh, November 23rd, two days after her servant, 
November 23rd, 1858. She died aged 59. So because of the epidemic, all the, like, because of what people knew or understood about how epidemics spread, it's just like the people who had it, like all their belongings are burned. Thank God. Um, before this, she had transferred all of the, the Bolivar archives, all the letters to someone else. So that's why the letter survived and they weren't burnt or lost. Manuela herself was buried in a mass grave, probably, along with others who had died in the epidemic. Somewhere on the outskirts of Paita, her exact resting place remains uncertain, even though in the 1980s, like there's a real concerted effort to try and find like where are her actual bones buried? No one knows. But her story was told and is still remembered to the point that in Spanish America, she now has this kind of mythic, iconic status. So, like, stories of her were spread and were shared, but the myth kind of, it became more widespread. Like, at first, it's just like, oh, yeah, Simone Believer, he had a girlfriend. Her name was Manuel Science. She was crazy. Whatever. She wore pants. Was she a lesbian? Whatever. But so in 1944, a novel by Alfonso Ramazzo was published called Manuela Science, La Liberatora del Liberator. And unlike earlier writings, which mostly brushed her off as like Bolivar's crazy girlfriend, this book fleshed out her story to show her as a real person and examined her importance to the revolution. So this book like was kind of a bit of a turning point, but also like it reflects societally, like they were looking for heroines like this. Um, in the 1980s, an Ecuadorian author slash activist named Nila Martinez uh, called for a fresh, more balanced look at Manuela, asking that historians recognize her rightful place in history and admit she'd been more than just a famous mistress. So this woman, Nila Martinez, organized an event um, in September 1989 to highlight Manuela, kind of a conference, and brought together 40 women from Ecuador, Peru, and Cuba, to, they met in Paita to honor Manuela's memory. Uh, they visited her, like what was probably her house, may, in the, her maybe burial place. And they just like gave talks and spoke about how important she was and how we should all um, respect her more. She has emerged, Manuela Sainz, as a feminist role model, as well as a source of inspiration and a rallying point for civic and social activists, as well as the beloved heroine of Ecuador. In 1998, during a protest in Quito, um, protesters, we, female protesters, rode on horseback to the Plaza de Independencia dressed as Manuela. And in 2007, the Ecuadorian government symbolically promoted Manuela Sainz to the rank of general of the army. So just to put this all in context, like looking at her legacy. So this is from an interview I read with Pamela S. Murray, the author of the biography that I mostly base this podcast on. So she says... In all of these rebellions against the Spanish, you see women playing very active roles on both sides. They were spies. They followed armies and treated soldiers' wounds and cooked their meals for them. Upper-class women were among the main conspirators against the Spanish regime. They helped hatch the first rebellions in their homes. They disseminated information. They were couriers and arms traffickers. It's not surprising that someone like Manuela would appear in this context in which women were so active. It just so happened that she became involved most politically with the most famous leader of the independence movement in South America. That's why she's gotten as much attention as she's gotten, but behind her were a lot of other women. After the revolution, Manuela effectively faded from literature. Between 1860 and 1940, only three Ecuadorian writers wrote about her and her participation in the revolution, and these writers largely portrayed her as either exclusively the lover of Simón Bolívar 
or as incapable and wrongfully participating within the political sphere. I'm still quoting from Pamela S. Murray, just so you know, quote. So with Manuela Sainz, there's also this mythology that grew up around her. She's this eccentric woman. She's called a slut, basically. There's a sort of black and white image of her. Whether you praised her or you criticized her, you were not really looking at the real person. And this is Pamela again. That's what I was trying to do in her book, to get at who she actually was as a person and cut through some of that mythology and the sensationalism. Manuela's impact on the independent movement is greatly underestimated today as she is remembered mostly as Bolivar's lover. In fact, she actively participated in the planning and funding of a good deal of rebel activity. She fought at Pichincha, Junin, and Ayacucho and was recognized by Sucre himself as an important part of his victories. She often dressed in the uniform of a cavalry officer complete with a saber. An excellent writer, her promotions were not merely for show. Finally, her effect on Believer himself should not be underestimated. Many of his greatest moments came in the eight years they were together. End quote. So today in Quito, many places such as schools, streets, and businesses bear her name. Her history is required reading for school children. There's a museum, Manuela Science, um, in Old Town Quito that contains personal effects from both Science and Bolivar to safeguard the memories of Manuela Science, Quito's illustrious daughter. I love this detail. Entrance to the museum is free with a purchase of one of the books about her life. Things inside the museum include letters, stamps, and paintings. And then in July 2010, Manuela Science was given a full state burial in Venezuela. Why Venezuela, you might ask, because that's where Simon Bolivar is buried. So because she had been buried in a mass grave, no official remains of her existed for the state burial. Instead, symbolic remains composed of some soil from the mass grave into which she was buried during the epidemic were transported through Peru, Ecuador, and Colombia to Venezuela. So these remains were laid in the National Pantheon of Venezuela, where those of Bolivar are also memorialized. So I'm going to read to you now some thoughts from Andrea, Tito Brigade member from Ecuador, who really, who explains her understanding and how, how people in Ecuador see Manuela today. So she says, We know her as Manuelita for the affection, one of the biggest heroes from the revolution. Every kid does the revolution at the school play and Manuelita is always the main character. She was an active member during the revolution, sometimes disguising herself as a man and fighting in the war. She came from a family with money, so she used it for good, planning and hosting the meetings where the revolution was planned. Iconic. That's how I would describe her. An iconic woman. She died terribly after Simone's death. She was exiled and got sick, so many of her belongings were burned, and she died as a homeless person in poverty. Here in Ecuador, we have a museum named after her with little belongings we have left by combs, letters, and some furniture. Personally, I love her. She makes all women feel empowered. For me, she is the face of Ecuadorian history. So we're going to score Manuela, as we always do for everybody on this podcast. And I'm going to, I also asked Andrea for her opinion on scoring. And I'm going to default to her um, in a lot of cases because for things like context significance, like I don't have the lived experience to understand her importance. But I think what I just read, like Manuela Science is such a heroine to, to the people of Ecuador. So. Oh, and first, there's the Lady Jane Seymour Memorial Award for Outstanding Supporting Performance. I do not, I did not learn enough about any of her friends. Like maybe um, Juana Rosa was there for her. She clearly was. Simone Bolivar not getting this award. I would say for all of Manuela's, everything she did for him, he was not the best boyfriend to her. So 
the first category is scandaliciousness. And this is like, we're not comparing her scandaliciousness to that of other people in the podcast, but more so to like other women living at the same time she did. Like how did society that she lived in see Manuela? Like, which was incredibly scandalous. Like her, um, she moved, there was that first part where she like moved to, um, when she's living in Lima and like the women there had a bit more freedom, they could walk around. But even within that, like she was hosting revolutionaries at her house. The, the fact that she like left her husband to, uh, to be with Simone Bolivar, but the fact that initially Simone like couldn't even sort of publicly say that that was his mistress because that was so scandalous. The things she did, like um, fighting in the battles, like the stuff like showing up to like try to attack the effigy or, you know, throwing the effigy based party. Like the stuff that she did in her life, I feel like was very scandalous. Like while there was a certain context in which she was able to do it, which we'll get to that in the sexism bonus, like she was in a society where like women could do some of this stuff. It was not normal. It was not okay to like society. Like her, remember her family, her father's family like went back to Spain because they were just like, oh, I don't like this. And she was like leaning into all of it. So for scandaliciousness, um, Andrea says, many of her life accomplishments are lured to her affair with Simone Bolivar, the main leader of the revolution. Both were married and had an affair that everybody knew about. Her husband was not happy. She suggests for scandaliciousness, a 10, I think I'm going to go with, just in terms of like living as a woman in this era where like later the fact that the guy from Ecuador was just like, you can't come here, women shouldn't do stuff like her entire life was incredibly scandalous. And therefore, I'm going to give her a well-deserved 10. The next category is scheminess. And this is like intelligence, smartness, resiliency. Like when you're faced with a problem, like what do you do about it? And I think she did incredible with this. Like I think to do as well as she did in, in the revolution, like being with the army, like having her spy network, like also like frankly, saving Simone Bolivar twice. The thing where she was just like, in terms of scheminess, like showing up and acting like an insane drunk person to get him out of the party so he wasn't assassinated, like genius. Andrea says, to move all the men she did in a country and time where women had no power, that lady was smart. She suggests a 10 and I frankly concur because yeah, like her scheme, like this revolution, like the way that she got people on Simone Bolivar's side was like unreal how persuasive she was, like which requires so much smartness, um, being so calculating and clever and using parties to get people on your side. Like I think she was incredibly smart, incredibly schemy. Significance. I'm fully just turning to Andrea for this. So she says, I don't think the revolution would have happened without her help, not just the economical support, but the ideas and inspiration that were needed. And that's where she's saying also how she's so significant. There's the museum, there's the, you know, every kid does the revolution at school. There's a play like she's so, so, so significant. Something I read was saying that she's like maybe the most significant uh, revolutionary figure in South American history. I think her significance is for sure a 10. Like even just the fact that she, all of her involvement with the revolution, like led to, like the revolution itself led to all these countries emancipating themselves from Spain. And it would not have been anywhere near as successful without her, without all the stuff that she did. Like she was right up there in importance. But also, frankly, the fact that she like saved Simone Bolivar's life twice, like literally, like, and 
quite significant to history as well. The final category is the sexism bonus. So this is where, well, like Andrea says, like this was a, an era where like women were a country in a time where women had no power and truly they didn't. Like I talked about some of the things that were like better there than in some other like eras we've talked about. Like in Lima, women could like walk on the street by themselves. Women were encouraged to join the revolution and stuff when she was a young woman. But that's like, that's within the revolution. That's not like the society at large. And once the revolution was over, it was very much just kind of like, okay, like women can go away again, like the president of Ecuador said. So she's up against a lot of sexism, for sure. The fact that she didn't get a pension when like men who did less than she did would have gotten like a lifetime pension. She didn't get a job. She couldn't have a job. So for sure, sexism did hold her back in those ways, comma. And at the same time, if we're looking at in the pantheon of cultures and societies we've talked about on this podcast, like she was able to join the revolution. She was able to join like Simone Bolivar, as much as I'm not giving him the award, like he gave her a job, like he made her the archivist. Like she was, she started her like homemade goods business. Like not to say that that's like amazing time to be a woman, but it's like she, in another story, in another era, like with different people around her, maybe she wouldn't have been able to be as involved in the revolution as she was. Like if Simone hadn't welcomed her help, if the other people in the revolution hadn't been. So the sexism is undoubtedly there um, and fucked up her life for sure. And she was able to do like a hell of a lot of stuff and to become really significant. So the sexism didn't get in her way to a 10 level. I'm going to give her for sexism. I don't know. This is controversial. I'm going to give her a seven, a seven for sexism. Cause it was for sure there, you know, like if a 10 would be like, she was trapped in the nunnery and not allowed to leave. Like she found a way to make her way in the world. But face love sexism still at the same point. So that adds up to a grand total of 37, which is the third highest score ever. So to recap, and I have to say the international women are making up almost all the top 10 at this point. So in terms of scores, Fredigand has a 38 on the Fredigand Memorial Scandalous Scale. Second place, Queen Margot, 37.5. And in third place, Manuela Sanz. 37. Just just below her and Jenga and Harem Sultan, both with a 36. The Chevalier Dayon, 35.5. Malenzine, 35.5. Queen Min, 35.5. And then Christina of Sweden with a 33.5. Yeah. So that's that's the top of things right now on the scandalous scale. And there's more episodes to come. I, I keep like suspensefully making you think like this season is going to come to an end soon and it will but like not right away we've still got at least three more people to talk about um how many episodes will each of those be i won't know till i start recording it so in the meantime so i am still always 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 looking for suggestions of people to talk about on the podcast and you can contact me with those ideas um if you go to vulgarhistory.com there's a form there where you can contact me with your suggestions. You could also email me right, like directly. Just email me at vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com. Also, uh, you can keep in touch with me. I'm most active on Instagram where I'm at vulgarhistorypod. If you check the stories there after every episode, I always have like polls and sharing pictures and stuff. Anyway, 
Um, I'm also on Twitter at Vulgar History. And well, I'm on TikTok at Vulgar History. Have I done much there? Frankly, no. Do I understand it? Not really. I am an aged crone, but I do. I'm excited to learn more about it probably during my upcoming hiatus. But in the meantime, if you're on TikTok, you should follow me at Vulgar History, even though I don't post anything, because then I can follow you back and then I can see what you're doing and maybe they'll give me ideas of things I could do. Or frankly, send me messages and tell me things you think I could do in TikTok. Like, I know the people are there. Like, I'm happy to engage with people wherever the listeners are. I want to be there with you, like, you know, sharing jokes, fun facts. Anyway, so just like tag me on Vulgar History on TikTok. Let me know what's going on. Also, um, Vulgar History, we have our merch store. Um, if you go to vulgarhistory.store and you can shop all the various things we have there. By the time this episode comes out, I think there will be the Lola Montez World Tour. It's kind of like a band tour t-shirt, but it's Lola Montez, the spider dance tour. Anyway, vulgarhistory.store. Remember when you're shopping there, you can use tits out for free US shipping or tits out 10 for 10% off. The store is being, there's like some stuff going on with the domain of the store. So if you like go to vulgarhistory.store and it's not working, what you can do instead is go to, well, first of all, you can just go to, there's like a link in my Instagram page that goes to the store that should always be working. And then also in like a roundabout way, you can go to vulgarhistory.creator-spring dot com, which is like a mouthful. And hopefully by the time this post, vulgarhistory.store is going to be working again. But anyway, if you're like desperate to, to get your merch, you can, yeah, just find the link through Instagram. Anyway, thank you all for being best listeners in the podcast land. Oh, and then also the other important thing is too, everyone says this, but it'd be, I really appreciate if you could rate the podcast, review the podcast, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, because again, I think I said last time, I got a review from somebody who gave me like the uh, large amount of stars, which I appreciate, but they said that I say the word like too much. And so if you think I say the word like just enough, or maybe not enough, like you could leave a, a comment there just to balance out that other comment. Anyway, thank you all for listening to this podcast. We'll be back next week with another story of another perhaps lesser known women from world history, comma, international style. Actually, I'm thinking, yeah, no, there's, of course, that's what is coming up on this podcast, but I've also got some author interviews coming up and I think that might be what you hear next. So stay tuned for that. And until next time, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumaki. Imagine it's a chill night on a desert plain. You're huddled near a bonfire for warmth. Above you looms an endless starry sky and all around you lies a sea of land. In this void, over the crackles of the flame, we ask, could we interest you in a spot of fireside storytelling? Introducing Temujin, a Webby-nominated adaptation of Central Asian folklore, performed by an all-Asian cast, perfect for fans of The Prince of Egypt or Amadeus. The show is an intimate epic that charts the rise of Genghis Khan, as told from the perspective of his childhood friend turned mortal enemy. All five episodes of Temujin are out now, 
So be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or learn more at realm.fm.